The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. It is, it's my hope this morning to encourage you with hope. The brokenness of our world surrounds us. Things like children suffering from separation at the border breaks our hearts. That's not me making a political statement. Regardless, we are very politically diverse here. Regardless of your political preferences or your opinions on immigration, as Christians, first and foremost, as the people of God, first and foremost, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we should agree that children being used as a deterrent breaks our hearts. That children being used as political leverage breaks our hearts. And we should work together to alleviate and eliminate the suffering of children even when we differ about how to do that. We're surrounded by the suffering of our world and it infects our own world. In our own community, Art Levine has been hospitalized for weeks. I sat with many of you over the past couple of weeks and in your own families, you've been dealing with disease or death. I've sat with some of you who are currently dealing with depression, which I've shared with you before, is my own personal largest struggle in my life. I had a really bad bout with it about two weeks ago. The brokenness of our world surrounds us and it is within us. So it is my hope this morning to encourage you with hope. The hope of a coming kingdom where brokenness is abolished. Where there is no suffering, no depression, no disease, no death. I want us this morning to catch a glimpse of that kingdom and its king. I want want us to get a, a picture of Christ as our prize that will empower us every day of our lives to declare the hope of Christ to the world. It's my hope this morning to encourage you with hope. So, let's pray, and then let's look into this world, this word to catch a glimpse of our coming King and His coming kingdom, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray. In the midst of a world that constantly makes us cry out, how long, O Lord? In the midst of a personal life that makes us cry out constantly, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. We pray that this morning you would grant us mercy through your word. That by your spirit, you would open our eyes, unfold and unpack what's here. Let it pierce our hearts Change us, conform us to the image of your Son. Let us see him, behold him, so that we become like him and a witness of him and the reality of him to this world. Father, this is our heart's desire. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to John 17, if you haven't done so yet. This is our fifth and final time in this chapter, and we have lingered here 
Because John 17 is the deepest prayer of our high priest, Jesus. It's the longest prayer we have of him in Scripture. It's the deepest prayer of his that we have in Scripture. And I've said many times that this is one of, if not the most theologically dense and deep chapters in the entire Gospel of John. I'm not alone in that. The uh, the late, great Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, he he wrote uh, expositions on the Gospel of John. And at the conclusion of his expositions on this chapter, this is what he writes. We may feel humbled as we leave this chapter when we think of our ignorance of the true meaning of many of its phrases. How much of our exposition is nothing better than feeble conjecture? That'll bless your heart as you prepare to preach on John 17. But it's true. This chapter is challengingly dense, but that's not a reason to leap over it. It's a reason for us to linger in it. Shades, do that in your personal Bible reading. When you you read Scripture, don't leap over what's hard and difficult, dense and challenging. Linger in it. Heed the command of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 7. He says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think, and God will be at work in your thinking. You see that? Think over what I say, and everything God will give you understanding. Use your brain. God gave it to you, and he's at work in the midst of it. When we encounter things in this word that are difficult and dense, we sink our teeth down into it. We dig down deep into this word, for it is worth more than gold or silver. And we as human beings are people who are willing to dig for gold and silver. How much more should we dig by God's power into the treasure of his word? Shades, when when you dig down into this book with your mind, the Apostle Paul promises that God is at work filling up the mining cart of your heart with the gold of his word. Let's, Let's keep digging for treasure in John 17 this morning shall we? Let's linger one last time over the deepest prayer of our high priest. After all, he's praying for us. And so we've wanted to see right here on the eve of his death, what words would be upon the breath of Jesus for you and for me. And what we've seen is that they are words of great glory and words of great joy. Funny, that's how his birth was announced. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, glory to God in the highest. And here, right before his death, the words on his breath are words of great glory and great joy for us and for the sake of the world. We've seen over and over again that the deepest prayer of our high priest is this. Jesus wants us to know joy in the glory of God so that our joy makes his glory known. That's how we've been summarizing his prayer. And we've seen him pray that again and again. We saw it last week when we were in verses 20 to 23. There, Jesus specifically turned from praying for his present 11 disciples. Remember, this prayer takes place on the night when he's going to be betrayed by Judas. We'll get there next week, finally. 
But he turned from praying for those 11 that were present with him to praying for future disciples, including us. And we saw him pray a petition with a purpose. His petition, that we would be one in the triune God. Not just one, like we just have some random kind of happy-go-lucky unity, but that we would be one in him, in the triune God. His petition is that we would be united in the Father, revealed through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. He prayed that we would be a people united in the gospel, united finding together our joy in the glory of the triune God. He wants us to know joy in the glory of God. And that petition, if you remember, had a purpose so that the world may know who Jesus really was, that he really was God in the flesh. He prayed that our joy would make God's glory known. We've seen again and again, Jesus wants us to know joy in the glory of God so that our joy makes his glory known. That's his prayer. And now, in verses 24 to 26, his prayer closes with a crescendo. Like there's, there's no like denouement, there's no like downward direction. This sucker is crescendoing all the way to the end. His prayer reaches a pinnacle, like he's prayed us to a peak. And, and it's at the highest height of his prayer that he gives us its deepest depth of application to us. At the highest height of his prayer, we find the deepest depth of its application to us. We've seen as we've walked through it, Jesus has been applying this prayer to us throughout it as we've walked along. Right here in verses 24 to 26, as he sums it all up, what I think he's doing is I think he's unfolding this prayer's ultimate application. Namely, he unpacks what will empower us day by day to find joy in his glory so that our joy makes his glory known. That's the application. He's got, this is what he's prayed for us, and now his prayer and applying it to us is going to reveal what empowers us to do what he's been praying. And, and here's the deal. Like I'm saying, verses 24 to 26 are Jesus' application of his prayer to us. And I fear that we often miss this application of power because verses 24 to 26 don't sound like application to us when we first read them or hear them. So, we need to see two things this morning. First, how is it that verses 24 through 26 are application? We're going to have a mini-sermon about application this morning. It's great. It's a soapbox for me. I love to talk about it. How is it that verses 24 through 26 are application? Second thing we need to see is we need to actually look at the application that Jesus is making. We need to see how we are empowered every day to find joy, to pursue joy in Christ's glory. So that our joy makes his glory known. If that's what he's prayed for you, don't you want to give your life to that? How are you going to do that? Not out of your own resources, you won't make it. What's going to empower that? So, those are our two questions. That's our plan of attack. Everybody with me? 
I'm excited about this one, people. So here we go. First, how are verses 24 through 26 application? We've got to ask that question because for most people, these verses don't sound like application. Let me read them to you. You see if you can hear. Haha, I love mixing up senses like that. You see if you can hear the application. So verse 24 through 26. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you hear the application? Most modern Westerners don't. There was a time when I would have looked at these verses, personally, when I would have looked at these verses and I would have said, there's no application here. And the reason is because I equated application with action. And these verses do not prescribe any action for me. They don't tell me to do anything. They describe what Jesus wants his Father to do. They describe what Jesus has done and what he plans to do, but they don't give me anything to do. So how am I supposed to apply this to my life? Here's the problem. In our modern, Western, self-help, pop psychology loving culture, we often equate application with action. And that notion has invaded pulpits and infected Christians so that when we hear a sermon, we're waiting for the preacher to get through all the boring history and theology and finally give us the useful stuff. Application. Action steps. Takeaways. What are this week's takeaways? What are the principles that I can go home and apply to my life? Come on, preacher man, give me a new list of things to do. Some boxes that I can go and check off this week and, and be doing a good job at the whole Christian life thing. This is what most modern preaching aims to accomplish. And it produces, as a result, it produces legalistic list keepers, not lovers of God ready to lose their lives for his glory. Shades. I plead with you not to equate application with action. Sometimes it is. Okay, sometimes Scripture is very clearly telling us to do or not do something. Thou shalt not lie. Hear the application? It's fairly simple. And technically, it's thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Sometimes 
Scripture is very clearly calling for an action or calling us, calling us to do something, calling us not to do something. Sometimes it's very clearly calling us to action. And when we're in the Word together, and that is the case, we will be all over that. But if that is all you are looking for in the Bible, action steps, practical advice to achieve your best life now, which Scripture doesn't promise you, best life later. If you're looking for action steps, practical advice, then you will find most of the Bible does not apply to your life. My running joke with you, cut out Leviticus. It's not going to apply to your life unless you want to know how to properly divide up some lamb liver. Which fat portions to burn? Which ones to take outside the camp? Which ones to leave in? The Bible is not primarily about action-oriented application. No. Scripture's application is primarily aimed at your affections. At what your heart treasures. Why? Luke 6.45 provides a good answer. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Scripture takes aim at your affections because your actions flow out of your affections. If we want God-centered actions, they're only going to come out of a heart filled with God-centered affections. Like, it doesn't matter if what you're doing, you would qualify it as good or as bad. If you want it to be God-centered, it comes from a heart with God-centered affections. You can do all the good, quote-unquote, actions you want. You can even come to Scripture trying to base all of your actions upon what you see in these pages. But if you have no affection for God, your actions are worthless, completely not God-centered. And 1 Corinthians 13 says that you can give away everything you own and give your body up to be burned. None of us have actions that good. In this room, because we're all here and not charred. It says you can do all of that, but if you have not love, that's a genuine love for God and from God. And it's meaningless. Jesus says you can go through all of the Christ-centered actions and words that you want. But if there's no real affection for him, it's lawlessness. He says that in Matthew 7. The final judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Speak Christ-centered words. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Perform Christ-centered action. And he says, I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. No effect. you. You can do all of the good actions you want. Even base them on Scripture, but if you have no affection for God, your actions are not God-centered. Has the Gospel of John not shown us that reality again and again through the Pharisees? These were men who used the Scripture to pursue right action, but were devoid of any true affection for God. Jesus said to them that their actions were worthless, not God-centered, but self-centered. Oh, shades the primary application of Scripture is aimed at your affections. Because your actions flow out of your affections. 
Most of your life, most of my life, most of life is not lived by us pausing to reflect on what action steps we should take. Like when I'm in the heat of the moment with my wife, I'm not pausing to pull back up my list of life principles on how to talk with my wife. Like most of life is not not lived pausing to reflect on action steps or what principles should govern our, govern our, our thoughts, our words, or deeds. Most of our life is just flowing out of the person we are. So Scripture goes after the person you are. It's not after mere behavior modification, but heart transformation. It's it's not aimed merely at changing your external actions, but at your internal affections. From cover to cover, the Bible holds forth the glory, the beauty, the goodness, the greatness of the triune God in order to captivate your heart with Him. Scripture takes aim at your heart. Preaching takes aim at your heart. I take aim at your heart, believing that as your affections for Christ grow, your actions for Christ follow. I believe Jesus told us something very similar to that just a few chapters ago, John 14, 15. If you love me, love, affections, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, this is what happens. Shades, we will talk together throughout our years together, and I pray there are many more. We will talk about keeping God's commands. We will talk about action, but never divorced from affection. We can't because Scripture's application is primarily aimed at your affections. When you hear this word preached, God is lifted up and you hopefully see more of who he is and your love for him grows. That changes the type of single you are, the type of husband you are, the type of father, the type of mother, the type of wife, the type of co-worker, the type of boss. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Scripture takes aim. Its application is primarily aimed at your affections. That's true for us today in John 17, 24 to 26. Now that we've seen how this passage is application, it's taking aim at your affections, increasing your love, you're, you, you're being captivated by Christ. Now that we've seen how it's application... We need to actually look at the application that Jesus is making. We know what his overall prayer is. Jesus wants us to know joy in his glory so that our joy makes his glory known. I'm going to repeat that until it's so burrowed into your mind that you wake up saying it in the middle of the night, cursing my name. Jesus wants us to know joy in the glory, in his glory, so that our joy makes his glory known. That's his prayer. How are we empowered to do that? How are we going to be empowered day by day in the midst of this world, our world? How are we going to be empowered day by day to know joy in Christ's glory so that our joy makes his glory known? It's our second question, and it's the application that Jesus aims to unpack. Let's see it together. John 17, verse 24. 
Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Last week, we saw a petition with a purpose. This week, we see a prize that provides power. Both messages brought to you by the letter P, clearly. See a prize that provides power. Don't worry, I don't have any endorsements from the letter P. I'm not getting kickbacks. If if you're new to Shades, yes, I am always this dorky. It's true. Jesus is no longer, at this point, Jesus is no longer just praying for his 11 disciples that are in his presence. No, he's praying for us. He's praying for them. He says it right here. He's praying for all whom the Father has given them. Every, every, have given him. Every believer ever. And he digs to the deepest depth of his high priestly prayer. He reveals his deepest desire for all of us who believe in him. Literally, he says, I desire. You see that right at the beginning of verse 24? Father, I desire. Thelo in the Greek means I desire, I will, I want. What does Jesus want for you and for me? We've been saying that he wants us to know joy in his glory. Is that what we see here? Father, I desire, I will, I want that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. He's consistent. It's the deepest prayer. It's his deepest prayer that you know joy in his glory. But Jesus digs even a little bit deeper here. He digs a little bit deeper with the glory that he's talking about. For this isn't just any glory. No, He wants you and me to see his full glory. Look at how he describes it. He says, I want them to see my glory. Now he qualifies it. That you, Father, have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before creation, before time, in eternity past, Jesus says the Father loved him in and through the Holy Spirit. God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons perfectly united in one God. We call it the Trinity. And Jesus says right here, before creation, before all time, the Father loved him and he gave him a special glory. We already talked about this last week when we were in verse 22. Before the foundation of the world, the Father gave, what kind of glory did he give him? He gave the Son the glory of himself. The glory of the Father. The Father gave the Son the glory of himself to reveal to the world. You're going to make me, the Father, known to the world. You're going to be able to say to your disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In eternity past, this is the job given to Christ The glory of the Father was given to him to make it known to the world. The world had rebelled against God, placed itself under God's righteous judgment. Christ came revealing to us the redeeming heart of God. He came to redeem us. Jesus took the death that our sin deserved, reconciled us, brought us back to God. We may behold his glory again. And now Christ is at work recreating us to be the sons and daughters of God that we were created to be. And Philippians 1, 6 promises that this good work of recreation that he began in us, Christ will bring it to completion. 
good work that he began in you. He will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That is the day that Jesus is praying for in John 17, 24. He's praying for the day that we stand in his presence, when our redemption is brought to completion, when we will be fully new. And not just us, all of creation. We're told in Romans 8 that all of creation currently groans under the curse of sin and death. And we're promised by Christ that he will make all things new, including new heavens, new earth. It will be fully made new because of the redeeming work of Christ. All of creation, us included, was originally created to display the glory of God. And we will do that perfectly again once more. This is the glory that Jesus is praying for us to see. The glory of him as the redeemer of all things. The glory of Him as the one who makes all things new. We see that glory in part now. Kind of like we're looking in a, a mirror dimly lit, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We see pieces of His glory as the one who redeems all things and makes all things new. But the day is coming when we will see that glory face to face in full array. Imagine. Imagine seeing all of creation as it was meant to be. Curse, gone. Sin, gone. Natural disasters, gone. Disease, gone. Death, gone. And your heart fully enjoys all of creation at its fullness, but not in an idolatrous way, no, in a way rightly related to God. The sunsets and the new heavens and new earth fill your heart with praise. The stars cause you to sing. The trees cause you to clap your hands in gratitude to Christ. Imagine, imagine not just that perfect relationship with creation, but our perfect relationship with each other. Imagine all of our relationships with one another rightly ordered, where we totally enjoy one another without making an idol of anyone but all of our love between one another points us back to christ imagine all of life all things perfectly doing what they were created to do including you like even john lennon's imagine seems so small when set next to christ as our all this is the glory Christ is praying for us to see. That one day we will stand before Him, completed and complete, and all of creation made new with Him as the Redeemer of all things. That's what He wants us to see in the flesh. His glory in full array that the father gave him before the foundation of the world he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world this was the plan for him to be the redeemer of all things to make all things new from before the foundation of the world he prays for us to see that for us to make it all the way home to the new heavens new earth if, if that phrase i keep using that phrase making an assumption i shouldn't make assumptions if that phrase new heavens and new earth is kind of weird for you if my description of the end of all things is this new creation is kind of weird for you if you've always thought that the end of all things is heaven some lofty spiritual realm where the ac is perfect everything's white we all sit around on clouds and play harp music that nobody likes no offense to harp players if that's your view of heaven that's not the bible's view of heaven you got that from saturday morning cartoons just like i did as a kid that's that's not it 
Scripture ends mirroring the beginning with God making all things new, all creation new, everything right, perfectly related to him, displaying his glory. Heaven is not you sitting in a perpetual, never-ending church service singing praises. I mean, even if it was, that'd be freaking awesome. Because Jesus would be there. But it's us enjoying everything he has created rightly related to him. That's why I'm not worried if I make it to the Grand Canyon before I die. I'll make it later. And I'll enjoy it better. Rightly related to Christ. Then Christ is praying for us to make it all the way home to the new heavens and the new earth and behold him fully as redeemer who makes all things new. Is he capturing your heart yet? Like is his glory stirring your affections? Do you see him as as the ultimate prize? Here, at the end of his prayer, Jesus prays to be the prize of our affections. Why? Why? In order to produce power for every day of our lives between now and when we arrive home. Jesus prays to be the prize of our affections in order to produce power every day of our lives. Look at verse 25. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. Why, why does he bring up the world here? World fights against him, opposes him. It's actually pretty much right on the money. He brings up the world here, and of all things, he reminds us what the world does not know. They don't know God. This is an echo. He's bringing this up because this is an echo of something Jesus has been saying throughout this night with his disciples. Nearly every time he has brought up the world in the last couple of chapters, it's been to remind his disciples that the world will oppose them because the world opposed him. Michael's right on it. John 15 and verse 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. John 16 and verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. John 17 and verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Every time he brings up the world, he's reminding us that the world has opposed him and will oppose us. And now he brings up the world again and the fact that they don't know God to remind us of the opposition that we will experience in this life. But he says, his point here, he says, even though the world doesn't know you, Father, I know you. And those who believe in me, they know you through me. It's what he says at the beginning of verse 26. I have made known to them your name. We know the Father through him. They know you, Father, through me. They know that I really am from you. They know that I really am who I say I am. And although the world does not know it, although the world opposes it, these, my followers, they know they really have me as their prize every day of their life. Jesus is praying to be the prize of our affections in order to produce power for our everyday lives, though all the world oppose us. 
Though the world not know him and reject him, he is going to provide power for our everyday lives by being our prize. Though all around our soul gives way, he then will be all our hope and stay. How? How does Christ, as our prize, provide power even amidst everyday opposition from our culture? even amidst everyday opposition from worldly temptations, even amidst everyday opposition from persecution. How does Christ, as our prize, provide power? Jesus shows us at least three ways in verse 26. Knowledge, love, and presence. Three ways in verse 26. Knowledge, love, and presence. John 17, in verse 26, Jesus says, I have made known to them, to us as followers, I've made known to them your name, And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. How does Christ, our prize, provide power every day of our lives, no matter what opposition comes our way in this world? First, through knowledge. Look at it again in verse 26. I have made known. I have made known to them your name, but it's not over. I will continue to make it known. Like until the day they are in my presence, seeing my full glory as the Redeemer and one who makes new all things, until that day, I'm going to continue to increase what they see. I'm going to continue to increase what they know of you, of me, of the triune God. I've made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. Christ has revealed God to us as our greatest prize, our greatest joy. And now he says that day after day, this is what he does in our lives. He continues to show us more and more of the glory of the triune God so that we know him more and more. Several months ago, Levi discovered a a video game called Lego Dimensions. And uh, he set the affections of his heart on it. And he began saving up his money, do chores and odd jobs. He would try to make up things for him to do to earn money. And, And funny enough, as his savings began to grow, he became tempted to go ahead and spend it on something cheaper than Lego Dimensions. At which point, I, trying to be a good father, teach him to save for something right, At which point, I would look up a YouTube video of the game, Lego Dimensions, and I'd show him a little bit more of how awesome it was. And in gaining more knowledge of the game's glory, empowered him to keep on saving his money. No matter the opposition of the cheaper toys pressing in on his heart. Continually knowing more of the glory of the game, keeping his eye on the prize, as it were, provided power day by day. How much more so the prize of the glory of God in Christ? How does Christ as our prize provide power? Jesus says he continually holds up the glory of the triune God for us to know more of him and more of him, see him as our prize more and more, to empower us to keep going until we possess all of him face to face 
He holds up more and more of the glory of God day after day. How, how does he do that? We actually already know from what we've traveled through in chapters 13 to 17 of John, from everything Jesus has already said on this night of his betrayal, he's told us that he continues to make the glory of the triune God known to us by the Holy Spirit working through his word. Sample verse, John 16 and verse 14. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit works through the word to show us more of our prize who is Christ. How does Christ, our prize, provide power every day for our lives? By his gaining more knowledge, seeing more. And when I say knowledge, I don't just mean head knowledge. I mean, it's knowing him and who he is. By his gaining more knowledge of him, seeing more and more of his glory. That he gives us that through his word. How, how can you do that? A Christian, shades, day after day. How can you? You participate in what it is that Christ is talking about. How is it that you can see more and more, grow in the knowledge of the glory of God more and more day after day so that it captures your heart more and more? Christ does it in your life by the Holy Spirit through His Word. You can do it like what we're doing right now. Opening up His Word to behold His glory. We come here together not to hear me, but to see the glory of our King through His Word. We don't just do it here. You can do it when you leave. You, you're going to go eat lunch afterwards, right? Probably with some people, right? Talk about what we've seen in the Word. Talk about it with your family. Talk about it with your friends, with your roommate. Talk about it with me. I love to talk about it some more. Talk about it with me. Talk about it with Brad, Ed, any of our pastors here. We'd love to talk more about what we've seen in the Word together. You can see more of Christ's glory through this Word by talking about it with one another and pointing each other towards His glory. You may have seen something that somebody else didn't see. You can do it not just on Sundays. You can keep doing this on Monday. Reread what we've covered together. Reflect on it, meditate on it, pray on it, linger over it, think over it, and in everything God will give you understanding. Read past what we've covered. Find someone to talk to about what you're reading so they can point you to the glory of Christ that they see. You can point them to the glory of Christ that you see. Talk about it with a close friend, spouse, roommate. Perhaps join a community group where you can come around this word and see together the glory of Christ. This is how Christ, as our, prize, as our prize, provides power every day of our lives. He grows your knowledge of His glory, stirring your affections. His application is aimed at our affections, right? He does this, empowering us to press on until the day we possess our prize face-to-face, -face, Jesus. If you are not growing in the knowledge of Him in whose glory, then then what knowledge are you growing in day after day? You're growing in something. Something's possessing the affections of your heart. Something's shaping what you want, desire. Christ says that He wants to shape our desires to be Him as our prize through seeing more of His glory through His Word. How does Christ, our prize, provide power every day of our lives? Through knowledge. But that's not all. Second, through love. 
through love. Look back at verse 26. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known in order that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. We've seen that the Father loved Christ by giving himself to Christ in all of his glory to reveal to the world According to verses 22 and 23 that we covered last week, the Father has loved us in the same way. The Father has given us Himself in all of His glory through Christ for us to make known to the world. There's nothing more loving that God the Father can do. This is the very definition of love in Scripture. God giving us Himself. For God so loved the world that He gave, that He gave. What did He give? He gave Himself. This is the glorious love of God. And Christ makes God in His glorious love known to us. That's what we just talked about. Makes Him known to us day after day in His Word. Christ makes God in His glorious love known to us in order that that kind of love might be in us. Love that delights to give others God in all His glory. Do you see Christ's application aimed at our affections ultimately transforming our actions? I'll try to illustrate this. I told you that with Levi and Lego Dimensions, I told you that I would hold up Lego Dimensions before Levi, give him more knowledge of its glory. I'd tell him all the reasons that I loved Legos as a kid. And my love shaped his love. I gave him more knowledge of the glory of Legos so that the love that I had for Legos might be in Him. Christ shows us the glory of God who lovingly gives us Himself in order that the same love might be in us. Empowering us to day by day love the world by pointing them to the glory of God and the gospel even if they oppose us. Because that's how God has loved us even when we opposed Him. How does Christ, our prize, provide us with power every day of our lives? Through knowing Him, transforms our affections so that in our actions we love as He loved us by offering Him to the world through the gospel. And even in doing that, He is at work empowering us because He's present with us. That's the final thing that we see here in verse 26. How does Christ, our prize, provide power every day of our lives through knowledge, through love, and finally through presence? Look at verse 26 one more time. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ in you. Your hope of glory. Christ, your prize in you, empowering you every day by revealing more and more of the glory of the triune God so that your affections are stirred up more and more, transformed so that you love as you have been loved. This is only possible because he who began this good work in you is also in you, faithful to bring it to completion. How does Christ, your prize, empower you every day? He is in you, with you, all the way. Know it, knowledge. Feel it, love. Believe it, his presence guarantees it. He's present 
with you, regardless of whether you feel it right now or not. If you have seen the glory of God in the gospel, that's only possible by Christ making it known to you. If you believe that God has loved you through the cross, that's only possible because Christ has applied it to you. If you know and believe, then John 17 guarantees Christ is with you. He's with you. He says it, I in them. Christ, your prize, is present and praying to empower you every day of your life to know joy in his glory so that your joy makes his glory known until he brings you all the way home. Into his very presence until that day, as the old hymn says, until that day when freed from sinning, when I see his lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing his sovereign grace. So come, no Lord, no longer tarry, bring thy promises to pass, for I know your power will keep me till I'm home with you at last. And shades, that day will come Beloved, it will come. First John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know that when, what we know is when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Revelation 22 and verse 4, my favorite promise in the entire Bible. It says of us, who worship the Lamb of God slain for the sin of the world, it promises, it says, we will see His face. See His face. Like the deepest prayer of our high priest answered will be with Him, seeing the full glory that the Father gave Him because He loved Him before the foundation of the world. Let that prize... Capture your affections. Transform your actions. This, this is John 17's glorious application to you and to me. Amen. Amen.